Located in the Bekaa Valley of Lebanon, east of the Latani River, is a fascinating city that goes by the name of Baalbek. The megalithic ruins located in Baalbek are among the most magnificent of the ancient structures in the world. The fact that the location is a tell has created a fair amount of controversy regarding the accurate age of the ruins and the methods of possible construction. Mainstream academia, although not completely agreed upon the particulars, has an overall consensus that explains the ruins and history of the site. However, as is the case with many mainstream consensuses regarding megalithic ancient sites, there are many other scholars and laymen alike that do not agree and have offered alternative theories. With the exception of a few specifics, the mainstream academia has settled on a consensus regarding the ruins of Baalbek, including both their history and method of construction. It is generally agreed that the history of settlement in the area of Baalbek dates back about 9,000 years, with almost continual settlement of the Tell under the Temple of Jupiter, which was a temple since the pre-Hellenistic era. Prior to the construction of the Temple of Jupiter by the Romans, Baalbek had evolved into an important pilgrimage site for the worship of the Phoenician sky god Baal and his consort Astarte, the Queen of Heaven. The name Baalbek means Lord Baal of the Bekaa Valley. The grand temple dedicated to Astarte and Baal was located on the Tell in the center of the city and the ruins of this earlier temple remain beneath the Temple of Jupiter. It is very important to notice that the archaeological date of settlement and the date of construction of the pre-Roman temple are not the same. It is not the position of mainstream academia that the earlier temple dates back 9,000 years. Unlike the archaeological record prior to Alexander the Great, the historical record regarding Baalbek is scant and almost non-existent. The following citation summarizes this fact. Quote, the name Baalbek may offer a clue about the nature of the original cult. The word probably is a shortening of the Semitic Baal-Nebek, meaning Lord of the Source. We should be careful, though. The name is not attested prior to the 5th century CE. Nevertheless, there is, indeed, a well some 800 meters southeast of the sanctuary nowadays called Raz Alam, meaning Head of the Source. The Greek top topographer Strabo refers to an Aramaic myth about a, a dragon named Typhon who had been struck by a bolt of lightning and fled underground, cutting through the earth, forming a riverbed, and finally causing a fountain to break forth to the surface. Strabo quotes this story in his account of the Orontes, which has its source 15 kilometers north of Baalbek. The river passes along ancient towns like Kadesh, Emesa, Hama, Apamea, Orgar, and Antioch until it reaches the sea near Seleucia. To the west of Baalbek are the sources of the Latani, which flows south through the Bekaa Valley along Chalkis, and it empties itself into the Mediterranean Sea near Tyre. The Orontes Latani Valley has always been an important trade route, and Baalbek must have been a nice place to stay with abundant sources and lots of cereals and fruits for sale. Hardly anything is known about the cult in the Late Bronze Age, although we know that in this age Baal became identified with the Syrian Hadad, a fertility god who was also responsible for rain, thunder, and lightning, and had his main sanctuary in Halab. 
The syncretism of the two deities is attested in the tablets from Ugarit. In Aramaic texts from the Iron Age, this god is the supreme ruler of the other divine beings, so Hadad is attested as head of several local triads. It must be pointed out, however, that although these religious developments took place, and although they do help to explain the nature of the cults in Baalbek at a later date, there is almost no evidence from the site in the Late Bronze and Iron Age. We only know that the place was occupied. Baalbek is conspicuously absent from Bronze Age texts, although Egypt was interested in Canaan, and the army of Ramses II passed along the place during the Kadesh campaign. The town is not mentioned in the text from ancient Assyria. The Bible does not refer to it. Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Macedonians, they all passed through the Bekaa Valley, but none of them recorded a sanctuary at the sources of the Orontes and Litani. However, the site is possibly identical to the town called Triparadises, where in 320 BCE the generals of Alexander the Great divided his empire. It is certain that the site became part of the empire that Ptolemy Soter created after the death of Alexander. Maybe it was in these days that the town was renamed Heliopolis, Sun City. From a local perspective, this name comes unexpectedly because Baal Hadad was not a sun god. However, in Egypt, the supreme god Ra was also a sun god, and he was worshipped in a town that the Greeks called Heliopolis. The idea to combine Baal-Hadad with the sun god and rename the town becomes explicable if we assume Egyptian influence. The fact that the historical record is basically non-existent prior to 334 BCE is important to note, because as we will see later, this is used by mainstream academia as a premise of its argument against alternative theories related to Baalbek. When Alexander the Great conquered the area in 334 BCE, the existing settlement was renamed Heliopolis, from Helios, Greek for sun, and Polis, Greek for city. In the last quarter of the first century, around 15 BCE, during the reign of Augustus, the area became under the control of the Roman Empire. Over a period of more than two centuries, the Romans built a temple complex consisting of four temples, Jupiter, Bacchus, Venus, and Mercury. During the reign of the Emperor Nero, between 54 and 68 CE, the sanctuary was completed and the construction of the Temple of Bacchus was started. Building lasted until the reign of Antoninus Pius, between 138 and 161 CE, who also completed the great court of the Temple of Jupiter. Under the reign of the Septimus Severus, 193-211 CE, the Grand Temple of Jupiter Ball was dedicated. Severus and his son Caracalla, between 211 and 217 CE, also built the Temple of Venus and added the Propylaea to the Sanctuary of Jupiter. The hexagonal core appears to have been renovated by Philip the Arab between 244 and 249 CE, but remained unfinished, and he may have also built the Temple of Mercury. With the Edict of Milan in 313 CE by Constantine the Great, Christianity was recognized. Unlike the fate that many pagan sites endured, Baalbek was not neglected or destroyed. The site was Christianized and all of the temples, Jupiter, Bacchus, Venus, and Mercury, were spared destruction through their use as churches. 
In 637 CE, the Muslims gained control of the area and renamed it Al-Kala, the fortress. And under the Arabian general Abu Ubaidah al-Jara, the city was given back its original name. On 7th century coins, it was called Baalbak. In 748 CE and 975 CE, the Byzantine army sacked the city but could not hold it. It survived the Mongols and other military campaigns before it passed to the Ottoman Empire in 1517, along with the rest of Syria. A series of earthquakes over the centuries damaged the site further, and nothing was done in the area of preservation or excavation until 1898 when the German Emperor Wilhelm II visited the area and sent a team of archaeologists to begin work there. The preceding mainstream version of Baalbek is the accepted consensus more or less. Now let us critically examine how this consensus is used to argue against any other theories of Baalbek's history and construction. The following passages indicated as the mainstream consensus are considered cogent conclusions within the ranks of academia. The archive will provide its response to each passage and point out what it considers to be the holes in each portion of the argument. So, to begin looking at the standard view, it is necessary to date the site. After Alexander the Great, the region would go back and forth under the control of the dynasties Alexander's generals had formed, and the Baca, another dynasty, formed and had its own currency. By the time the Roman general Pompey conquered the region, the place was noted by the geographer Strabo as mountainous with high regions controlled by robbers, and the plains had farming communities. There are no indications of any great structures there, let alone some of the largest stones ever moved. So far, the information is correct. As quoted in the historical summary at the beginning of the video, there indeed is scant or even non-existent information about the location as we look further back. But it is important to note that the author of the argument is focused on the mention of structures and stones in the annals of history when in fact there is no mention of anything about the city itself, much less structures or stones. The literary silence from a multitude of sources is already suggestive that this wonder of the ancient world did not yet exist. That leads us to the archaeology to see how much antiquity we can put into the great stone structures there. Now the author is starting to make presumptive leaps. He is doing this not based on evidence, but the lack thereof. To counter this part of the argument, one simply needs to remember this quote by a fairly well-known gentleman that goes by the name of Carl Sagan. The absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. To understand how to date the site, we first need to know what was built there besides the amazing western wall that houses the Trilithon. There were several temples built there, the largest being the Temple of Jupiter, in the past boasting a multitude of huge Corinthian columns. These are some of the largest columns in antiquity, and they were hewn from the local stone sources. These columns are not a single solid piece, but instead there are several pieces or drums that had to be stacked together, with the capital placed at the top holding up the roofing structure as well as having its own classical elegance. The other temples there, such as that of Bacchus and Venus, also have these columns, a staple of Greek and later Roman architecture. So far, so good. Nothing really out of the ordinary, right? 
except one might take note that the author has already reduced the focus to determining the age of the site to one archaeological aspect, Corinthian columns. As we can see, he has immediately shifted the focus to an architectural feature that is predictive of an exact time period. There is no focus in the premise on any other archaeological evidence, such as the artifacts that revealed ceramics from a settlement from the Chalcolithic and Early Bronze Age. So, in dating the site, would it not behoove us to take that into consideration also? While not as massive as the Trilithon stones, these base structures each have a considerable mass. However, below them was discovered a part of a drum to a column. The size of the drum corresponds to the columns used for the Jupiter Temple, so this was likely a leftover or no longer useful piece of one of those columns. Because it is underneath the base stones, this drum must have been placed there before the Trilithon was put into place. Sounds like impressive evidence, right? Two things about this drum one will learn when it is researched. Number one, the reference to it is an oft-repeated so-called fact derived from only one source, which is a book by N. Jaidi Jion, Baalbek, Heliopolis, City of the Sun. And number two, there is no actual evidence of the drum. Many visitors that have read about this supposed drum have searched to no avail to locate it. Also, on top of one of the Trilithon stones, there is a drawing of the plans for the Temple of Jupiter, which was built over by the Romans when it was no longer needed. By having pieces of the Jupiter Temple below the Trilithon and these drawings on top, we can be reasonably certain that the Trilithon stones were put in place contemporaneously with the construction of the Temple of Jupiter. Well, considering there's no actual evidence of the drum referenced, it basically destroys the premise of this passage. If the drum really cannot be proven to exist, let alone be located under the Trilithon, then the conclusion mainstream draws is faulty at best and thoroughly unconvincing. So already by having the Trilithon stones contemporaneous with the temple, we have established the Roman provenance of the structure. Actually, no, we have not. This is called begging the question. Begging the question is a fallacy in which the premises include the claim that the conclusion is true, or directly or indirectly assume that the conclusion is true. This is used often in mainstream arguments, and those folks not aware of this technique are usually duped by it. However, we can do more to pin down the dating of the megalith's placement. In the rubble found at the temple complex, the top drum of a column of the Temple of Jupiter had an inscription placed on it which dates itself to the reign of Emperor Nero. Dedicated to Fortuna, the inscription was likely made just before it was placed into the column structure. As such, we know that the temple was still being built during the reign of Nero. However, it, is likely, it was likely began before he took control of the empire. Recent research indicates that before the great temple of Jupiter was built, there was an earlier unfinished temple there, built perhaps during the reign of King Herod the Great. This temple would have been worked out before the time of the great retaining wall with the Trilithon, so we can say that the construction and placement of the Trilithon must have been after Herod's time and before the end of Nero's reign. 
So not only can we discount the fanciful ideas of the structure having been built by aliens in the great and distant past, but we can actually narrow down to several decades when the structures were being put in place. Wow. Here is where the mainstream argument gets really sloppy. Notice that there is a built-in assumption in the previous passage. Quote, this temple would have been worked out before the time of the great retaining wall with the Trilithon. How mainstream creates this conclusion is a mystery, seeing as how there is no evidence presented for it. The only thing successfully argued to this point is that the Romans built the temples. Indeed, the premise that the Romans built the temples is not in question. But the fact that they did build the temples proves absolutely nothing about the foundation. If this is the logic used to argue that the Trilithon is built by the Romans, then the archive proposes mainstream get back to the drawing board and come up with something better and more convincing. Moreover, when it comes to the cultures we know of, the Romans are far and away the most plausible people that could have built this place up. While the Egyptian pyramids are a marvel, the average stones that were moved are not within two orders of magnitude of the mass of the Trilithon stones, 2.5 tons versus 800 tons. And the Egyptians didn't have tools such as cranes or compound pulleys. The construction of these buildings required a level of technology that would not exist until the Hellenistic period, and the Romans would perfect it. Moreover, the Romans had the political stability in the region, the finances, and the technical know-how. In particular, they had a lot of knowledge and practice with the use of the crane. Ever hear of Occam's razor? It is a rule of thumb that is used to give provisional acceptance to a hypothesis. The provision is that until evidence comes along to give greater weight to an alternative hypothesis, it is best to stick to the simplest one. Understanding this is, is a logical argument technique with a particular name is not the point here. The point is understanding that it represents a hypothesis, not an actual proof. Another argument against the mainstream view is worth mentioning at this point. In the article, Baalbek, A Colossal Enigma, Guillen Quasar makes a noteworthy observation. To further increase their mysterious origin and original use, these megaliths are not foundation stones as they are always declared. They represent the top course of stones of the original edifice, whatever they may have been. Whatever its purpose, it was essential that the greatest stones had to be on top, not the bottom. The whole edifice is inverted in concept, fact, and layout. Below them, at least three tiers of stones can be found, much smaller, though, still monumental in size. Another example that they are separate to the Roman temple is that while the Romans built the back of their temple wall flush with three of these stones, on one of the sides of the Temple of Jupiter, the perimeter clearly falls short of the width of the original megalithic structure, allowing a tier of megaliths to protrude obtrusively from the temple foundation, incongruous if they were simply foundation stones for the Roman temple. But it seems the Romans could not extend the building far enough to cover the layout of megaliths. Taking the time to answer...
analyze the mainstream argument regarding Baalbek leads one to realize that the argument is full of holes. The ones presented here in this video are just the tip of the iceberg. While academia's consensus, using the archaeological records mixed in with missing history, sounds impressive, to a more discerning mind it is far from convincing. And considering that mainstream is guilty of the same fallacies of which it accuses non-conventional theorists, the archive argues that some of the alternative theories can have just as much validity. There are numerous alternative theories related to this location, its age, and the origin of its builders. In the realm of ancient astronaut hypothesis, Zachariah Sitchin stands out for his research concerning the location and its relation to ancient Sumer. Whereas mainstream academia normally discounts anything in the historical record that itself proclaims as myth or legend, many other scholars are not so quick to dismiss potential evidence located in the tales written down by our ancestors. The following passage from Sitchin summates his assertion well. I and those who have been with me to the place several years ago can attest that the Roman ruins are indeed imposing remains of three magnificent temples, including the largest temple to Jupiter anywhere in the Roman Empire, Rome itself included. But the Romans came there because the place had been revered earlier by the Greeks. Pompey, Rome's conquering general, offered their sacrifices in 60 B.C., imitating Alexander the Great, who paid their homage to Zeus centuries earlier. The Greeks came because the place was deemed a unique, sacred site by the Phoenicians and the Babylonians before them, and before all those generals and emperors and kings, Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, and ancient Sumer, went there circa 2900 B.C to obtain immortality from the gods. Having been the son of the goddess Ninsun and the high priest of Uruk, Gilgamesh was considered not just a demagogue, but two-thirds divine. This, he asserted, entitled him to avoid the death of a mortal. Yes, his mother told him, but to attain our longevity, you have to go to our planet, Nibiru, where one year equals 3,600 earth years. So Gilgamesh journeyed from Sumer, now southern Iraq, to the landing place in the Cedar Mountains where the rocket ships of the gods were lofted. The Epic of Gilgamesh, a text found inscribed on clay tablets, actually describes how Gilgamesh witnessed a rocket ship being launched from the landing pad. A later Phoenician coin depicted such a rocket standing on a launching pad. As the depiction shows, the launch facility was located on a great platform, and indeed, the truly ancient site of Baalbek encompassed a paved stone platform of about 5 million square feet. Another popular alternative theory is presented by author Graham Hancock. Mr. Hancock has made it a point to state his disbelief in the ancient astronaut hypothesis. The extent of his analysis simply arrives at the conclusion that some earlier ancient civilization must have existed on Earth. He pursues the question no further as to where they originated nor how they developed the technological know-how. 
And while he does not believe ancient aliens are involved, because he stops short of theorizing about the origins of such a civilization, he unintentionally leaves the possibility of extraterrestrial involvement still on the table. What can be said about Mr. Hancock, regardless of his disbelief in the ancient astronaut hypothesis, is that his challenge to mainstream archaeology is a good starting point for anyone who strives to learn more than the official consensus about many megalithic sites around the world, including Baalbek. Mainstream archaeology says all this quarrying and moving of huge megaliths was done by the Romans. Unsurprisingly, I believe mainstream archaeology to be wrong. I'm not persuaded by the archaeological case that the megalithic foundations of the Temple of Jupiter in Baalbek, Lebanon, were the work of the Romans. There's no doubt that the Romans could move very large blocks of stone, and there's no doubt that they were responsible for the classical majesty of the temple itself, but I'm presently working on the assumption that they built it on top of a megalithic platform that had already been in place for thousands of years. The western side of that original megalithic platform is shown in the collage of photographs with this post. On top of six megaliths in the range of 400 tons each are prominently positioned three gigantic megaliths weighing approximately 800 tons each. I am aware that megaliths even larger than this, for example the so-called Thunderstone of St. Petersburg, have been moved and positioned on flat ground in historical times. But the moving and positioning of three 800-ton megaliths to a height of 18 or 20 feet above the ground, as is the case at Baalbek, is a problem of a completely different order. I suggest this requires careful consideration rather than simply saying the Romans did it, as archaeology is at present inclined to do. I have many reasons for this view to do with the possibility of a lost civilization. However, to consider just a single point here, we need only turn to the quarry at Baalbek where a number of even larger megaliths, but clearly of the same type as the 800-ton blocks under the Temple of Jupiter, were left in situ by whomever conceived it possible to build with megaliths on this scale. If it was the Romans who quarried and moved everything, then we have to ask ourselves why at least two huge blocks in the range of 1,000 to 1,200 tons each were left in the quarry at all. The conventional answer is that the Romans, having quarried these exceptionally large blocks, found that they could not move them and simply abandoned them. But that explanation makes very little sense. If the argument that the Romans were responsible for the megalithic platform is correct, then we know that they went on to build an extensive temple complex dedicated to Jupiter using smaller blocks of stone. Surely their first source for the multiple smaller blocks that they needed would have been the huge megaliths that, according to the argument of mainstream archaeology, they had discovered they could not move from the quarry. The Romans were practical people who would not allow work that they had already so painstakingly done to go to waste. Rather than opening up fresh quarry faces, wouldn't they have used those massive, already almost completely quarried 1,000-ton-plus blocks and simply sliced them up into smaller, more movable megaliths for the construction of the rest of the temple?